Hi, this is Bob Heiler of the Bankruptcy Law Success Podcast, where we introduce you to successful bankruptcy lawyers, as well as powerful ideas that can transform your bankruptcy practice. Today, I'm very excited to be speaking with Austin Smith, an attorney who founded Smith Law Group, which is devoted to discharging student loans in bankruptcy. He's here in New York City along with me. Austin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Bob. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, so I'm very excited to have you on the podcast. I know that you have worked with Michael Jafar, who we uh, just interviewed about private student loans, and you worked with him on that. Yes, sir. So normally I like to kind of go through the history of the lawyers that I interview, but Austin, for you, I was wondering if you could start by explaining in 30 seconds what the big issue is that you're dealing with in terms of student loans and why everyone should drop what they're doing and pay attention to the rest of this podcast. Absolutely. So I think the headline here for me has always been, not all student loans are non-dischargeable in bankruptcy. So to the extent that everyone thinks student loans are completely immune from discharge, that's just fundamentally not true. It does require a certain amount of analysis, but I think that bankruptcy practitioners not only can help their clients, but they can actually make money by doing a thorough analysis of a client's student debt, determining what's dischargeable and what's not, and getting your client out of a very bad situation that a lot of these people fall into. Mm -hmm. And if you are a bankruptcy lawyer, you know, we're dealing with filings being down 50%, 60% since the peak, and everyone wants to crack the student loan market. You know, you're talking about the holy grail of discharging student loans through bankruptcy and really giving people a fresh start, but this is an issue really that affects the private student loan market. How big of an issue are private student loans versus the total student loan market? Yeah, and, that, and that, that's a very important point. That's right. Uh, there's not much, uh, unfortunately, that has changed in the federal student loan market, which constitutes about 85% of the total student loan market, which is partly why no one ever really talks about private student loans, because it's only 15%, maybe a little higher than that, of $1.3 trillion. But I think they really should be. And, and the reason is this. Federal student loans, for all of their problems, do have pretty equitable payment plans. You know, you can get into one of these income-based repayments where you're paying nothing more than 15% of your discretionary income. And I understand that that can be a lot of money for people, but it is capped. You can get easier deferments. You know, after 20 years, the entire debt is forgiven if you're in one of these income-based repayment plans. So the federal government, you know, for all their faults, has done a lot to work with student debtors. And so, you know, in my practice, People who have federal loans are never really in that much trouble. There are places they can go. The Department of Education will work with them. That is not true for private student loans. Private student loans are nothing more than credit-based consumer transactions. They have very high interest rates. I have clients with interest rates as high as 14 15%. Oh, wow. There are no payment plans. You are paying based on the principal and the interest, and they do not care how much money you're making. You know, it is not unusual for my clients to have bills every month or two to three thousand dollars a month in private student debt. You know, where while their federal loans are, you know, two or three hundred bucks a month. Mm -hmm. So, in my experience, the private loans, although it's a smaller segment, it is where people are getting into real trouble, and there are no, there's no way out of it. The federal government is going to work with you. In my experience, the private lenders will not. And so that's why I find it so important to talk to your uh, clients with private student debts about their options in bankruptcy, because very often there is a lot that can be done. You know, it's not going to solve the whole problem. Mm -hmm. This is not going to fix the student loan problem. It is going to, I hope, provide a little bit of release from all the pressure, clean up the worst segment of the market. And then, you know, at some point, Congress is probably going to have to do something about the federal student loan problem. And that's a problem for sort of better minds and bigger people. Mm -hmm. But I think that this is an area of law where bankruptcy lawyers can really be the driving force behind correcting a system that really went off the rails in between 05 and 08 when they were just originating billions and billions and billions of dollars of this stuff and securitizing it into asset-backed securities, just like the mortgage crisis. Mm -hmm. And that needs to be cleaned up and fixed. And, you know, then we can move on and tackle the federal problem, hopefully through congressional action. Mm -hmm. are, are you also kind of seeing that student loans, discharging student loans through bankruptcy is a real growth industry? And by the way, this is a total, I'm tossing this ball up for you to spike it here because that's my strong <laughs> sense. Yeah, so, you know, when, when I first started doing what I'm doing, there were, you know, very, very few published opinions on discharging private student loans in bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, every, every couple months, a court will deny an undue hardship challenge. But that was sort of the only avenue people thought was available. What we started doing was saying, hey, let's step back a second. The, the, the bankruptcy code does not say all student loans are non-dischargeable. It has very specific requirements. Mm -hmm. And although the federal government is totally immune, 
Private lenders are not. Private lenders were given very limited and qualified protection in the bankruptcy code. And so before you're asking my client to prove undue hardship, why don't you prove to me that this is a genuine qualified education loan? Mm -hmm. And once we flipped the tables on them, their first reaction was, this is ridiculous. This isn't how the world works, kid. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we started getting judges to agree. And now there was really no opinions on it. We've now, I've been a part of several, but not all of them. We've won nine out of 10 of the last cases over the last 18 months where courts have sort of adopted this view, said, wait a second, mm -hmm. you can't just walk into this bankruptcy court and say, oh, it's a student loan, can't get rid of it. You know, you need to, you need to show me why this is non-dischargeable. Mm -hmm. And that I think was a real sort of revolution in a sort of, you know, uh, in a sense that, you know, we sort of flipped the tables on them and said, you know what, we're done trying to prove undue hardship for these things. First, you prove to me this, this is entitled to a presumption of non-dischargeability. And we have found that judges are receptive to it, and that the banks very often can't prove it because it just it, it doesn't meet the statutory requirements. I love it. You're flipping the script. That's, that's what we're trying to do, you know. So can you give us an example, general example, hypothetical example? Well, not hypothetical. Maybe a real example where you're not bound by confidentiality agreements. But give us an example of someone came in struggling under a mountain of debt and, and you saved them. Sure. So I, I think the client, you know, and this one is still a little bit ongoing, so I, I can't give you the sort of fairy tale ending yet, but I think it's the most important case. And the, it was actually the guy I first met. Uh, you know, it was on, when I first started doing this, I was just sort of looking around chat forums and, and, and people were talking about student loan problems. And I started talking to a guy who had, and I'm not joking, a million dollars in student debt. Whoa. <laughs> he had $400,000 in federal and $600,000 in private. And we started talking, and this is after I first published my article that, you know, no one was really paying attention to. And he said, you know, well, everyone's telling me I can't get rid of it. And I said, well... You know, I don't want to get your hopes up because I have no way to prove this to you yet. But I, frankly, I just don't think that's true. Hmm. And he was he'd actually been to law school, which is partly how he borrowed this much money. And so he said, all right, well, let's try it. Now, he was out in California, um, so I had to hire, uh, get him another lawyer to do it. And I've just been sort of helped doing the briefing for them. Mm. But we, you know, the result was exactly what my article had sort of spoke on. And prior to the court ruling on that, we'd won two other cases. So we had a little bit of precedent. And it was this, you know, the bank said, he had, I think there were five or six different lenders. All the major sort of names on Wall Street had lent this kid, you know, $100,000 each. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he'd been borrowing money what are these called direct-to-consumer loans that aren't really around anymore, but from 05 to 08, banks were uh, bypassing the financial aid office to originate more and more of this debt. And they were just sending thirty or $40,000 checks to people every couple, every couple months. And I'm really not exaggerating about that. This guy was getting thirty dollars to $40,000 every couple months during college. Okay, so he did. He borrowed to attend both undergraduate and then immediately after he did law school yeah so even if that's seven years of schooling you could that's that's a million dollars yeah so he's borrowing about a hundred thousand dollars on top of his federal loans every oh, year wow. in any event yeah so we went into court and and the judge wrote an excellent opinion absolutely agreeing with us he said absolutely not you know, just because these things are called student loans doesn't mean they're non-dischargeable mm -hmm. i mean you know he, he noted the size of the debt which just has a sort of shock value like what is this a joke how do you have a million dollars in student debt and so you know we won the uh, motion to dismiss and are now you know come doing discovery and sort of working our way towards trial and you know I, I, that case I mean, i'm very confident we will win in the end but, uh, you know, it was sort of a major sort of watershed moment of, you know, just sort of breaking through that initial misconception that everyone had, which is, well, you borrowed a million dollars, it's all non-dischargeable, nothing you can do. And that's just, that's just not the case. Awesome. So I want to take a step back and ask you how you discovered all this. But before I do that, I want to stop and speak to the audience. And I want to say that if you're a bankruptcy lawyer and you're struggling to get to sign up retainers and just do regular bankruptcy filings, there is this whole world, this blue ocean of student loans, discharging student loans through the bankruptcy process. And I really want you to pay attention to the rest of this podcast because this could be the most important next 30 minutes of your law career. And I, I don't normally say things like that. I'm just going to go out there and say that. Okay. So, Austin, you're now, you're describing uh, cases that you're working on now. This kind of all stems back to the article that you, that you published, uh, The Misinterpretation of 11 U.S.C. 523-A8 in July 
2014. I believe you were still in law school when you published that. Can you tell us a little bit about how this novel interpretation of 523 AA came about? Yeah, and so you're going to have to bear with me. This is going to get a little nerdy, but try to explain it in, in as plain English as possible. So that's right. I was in law school. That was sort of originally just my law review note. Mm-hmm. I had been, you know, I was a third-year student, and I was, you know, I had to write an article to sort of, you know, meet my requirements for the review. And I was sort of looking around for a topic, and was frankly just planning on kind of mailing it in. Mm-hmm. You know, just finding an easy thing, writing some kind of public policy puff piece and being done with it. And for whatever reason, you know, I had some sort of lawyer friends, and one of them, I was talking to him one day, and he said, oh, you should write about student loans. And I said, well, I, I, you know, I sort of, I, I humored him, but I was like, that doesn't really sound all that interesting. And he, for whatever reason, I thank him for doing this, said, no, 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 seriously. Let me send you a case. This is a really sort of peculiar area of law. And so he sent me a case that was about undue hardship. And, you know, I don't know, undue hardship proceedings are are a very strange sort of judicial proceeding. You know, it's essentially a suffering contest. The debtor comes in and they're being asked to prove in a court of law that their life is so horrible that they should be relieved of their obligation to pay their debt. And it's, it's, it really, you read them and they don't, you know, they, they, they've tried to dress it up in legal language, but it's not very successful because at the end of the day, you know, you read these opinions and the judges say, well, yeah, you lost your job and you were hit by a car, you know, but Hope Springs Eternal guy and you may be, you know, running you know, Microsoft one day. So I'm going to, uh, you know, I'm not going to say it's all over for you. You know, let's see what the world has to offer. And so they've sort of misused this, you know, American optimism against the debtor to say, you know, we can never know what tomorrow holds. Mm-hmm. So it's not, as a matter of law, I can't say that forcing you to repay this is an undue hardship. And so I was reading that. I was like, you know, that's really, that is odd. And then I started looking around, and there, a lot of people had written about this. This was not a new observation. And so I sort of said, I don't know, I'm just going to copy one of these guys and say the same thing they've already said. But in any event, I kept reading them, and I started to notice something. And that's sort of where this article came from. You know, in some of these cases, the debtor would come in, And the judge would say, rightly, um, all right, well, the first thing we need to decide is whether this is an educational loan that's except from discharge. Mm -hmm. So right there, the judge sort of was on the right track. Okay, first, let's let's do first things first. Mm -hmm. And the judge would say, all right, you know, I've got this statute here, 523A8, and it's got three parts. The first part says, essentially, it's got to be a federal student loan. And the judge looked at the loan documents and said, well, this isn't a federal student loan, so that doesn't apply. And then he went down to the, the next section. He said, all right. Otherwise, it's got to be a qualified education loan, and this is for the private lenders. And he said, all right, well, what's a qualified education loan? And he sort of read through the statute. He said, all right, well, it's got to be for an eligible student at an eligible school. Blah, blah. And he looked at the loan. And he said, well, this isn't that. This guy was attending a, an unaccredited career training program. He's like, this isn't an accredited program. He said, it's, it's not a qualified education loan. And then he came to the third part, which is this very strange language that says, or an obligation to repay funds received as an educational benefit, scholarship, or stipend. Wasn't a lot of law on what that meant. And the judge said, well, seems to me that this debt provided an educational benefit, so therefore it's non-dischargeable under number three. Mm -hmm. So let's move on to the undue hardship challenge. Mm -hmm. And it just struck me that that was insane, Uh, or maybe not insane, but just wrong. Why would Congress accept two very specific types of debt, and then the third one say, and any other loan that provides educational benefit? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's like sort of the way I've always thought of it is you like walk into a mini mart and you say, hi, do you guys sell alcohol? And he says, no, we don't sell Budweiser in cans, and we don't sell Jack Daniels in bottles, and we don't sell any alcohol. It's like, why would you need to go through those first two if number three covers all of them? And so started doing a lot of research. And I knew that was wrong, but I didn't know why, and I couldn't figure out how to prove it. But I started playing around, and, you know, when you look at that statute again, okay, so it says an obligation to repay funds received as an educational benefit, scholarship, or stipend. Well, those three words taken together, benefit, scholarship, and stipend, surely each of those is sort of referring to a a species of one genus, such that, okay, a benefit should be interpreted in accordance with scholarship and stipend. Well, what does benefit actually mean? Oh, benefit has two meanings. One is a payment made by a governmental unit or an employer, you know, like an insurance benefit, an employee benefit. And number two is or anything advantageous. And so it just sort of dawned on me, wait a second, they're not using benefit in the second sense. They're using benefit in the first sense, such that a scholarship and a stipend are also payments made by a state or the employer. 
And so that dawned on me, and I was absolutely convinced I was right, but I had no way to prove it. And so what I just started doing for the next three months was reading every legislative history transcript for the last 30 years, amending the bankruptcy code. There must have been, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of pages, most of it completely worthless. But finally, I was able to start sort of some of them were searchable, word searchable, as you could just control F it. I started looking for keywords, and lo and behold, from 1990, I found when they had amended the statute for this particular provision, the lawmakers said, uh, all right, guys, we need to amend the law because some of these scholarship kids are gaming the system, and this is what they're doing. If you get a scholarship, let's say you go to West Point, right? The government will actually pay for West Point, and it's, but it's a conditional scholarship. So what the government's going to do is, all right, we'll pay for West Point, but then you've got to join the Army for 10 years. And now, if you go to West Point and then you don't join the Army, let's say you just don't show up to boot camp, you're like, you know what, I'm going into private equity, screw this. The government then sends you a bill, and they say, okay, well, you didn't honor your contract, so now you owe us $300,000. Now, what that is, is that's an obligation to repay funds received as an educational scholarship. Mm-hmm. And so what Congress said was, under the current version of the law, guys, that's not technically a federal loan. And so kids can default on their contractual obligations to the federal government, then go into bankruptcy court and get it discharged because technically it's not a student loan. It's a defaulted contractual obligation. Mm-hmm. So we need to fix this, and the way we're going to fix it is by calling this an obligation to repay funds received as an educational benefit scholarship or stipend. Mm-hmm. And so when I found that, I was like, okay, good. I was right. You know, that, that is the right way to read this. Actually, I'm going to have to disagree with you because I'm pretty sure you were a little bit more excited and you weren't that rational. <laughs> yeah, I was. Yeah. I was. I still, yeah, I mean, it was sort of that aha moment, aha. Uh-huh. I was spending three months in my apartment reading legislative history uh-huh. and I found it. Yeah. So it was kind of a cool moment for me. And so I wrote the article and I got the American Bankruptcy Institute to publish it. And honestly, at the time, I thought, okay, good, I solved that problem. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, everyone's going to read it. People are going to make this guy so great. And all the judges are going to say, oh my God, we're so wrong. Everyone's going to fix it. Everything's going to be fine. Mm-hmm. And as I learned, absolutely nobody read it and nobody cared. Mm-hmm. So that was a good lesson in sort of, you know, how the world works. <laughs> um, so. I had gotten a job at a, a consumer defense, or no, I'm sorry, a, a defense firm in New York, mm-hmm. and it was a great firm and really nice people doing very good work, and I uh, just started doing typical corporate defense work. And But I was always hounding the partners to sort of let me do this, and what do they say, so what do you mean by let me do this? They said, well, let me go find a client, I'll do a pro bono, and I'll test this theory. And they said, yeah, 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 get back to your doc review. We'll talk about that later. Uh-huh. And so that went on for a while. And eventually, you know, the emails and the phone calls finally got the better of them. They said, oh, you know, just to get you off my back, do it. Fine. Go find a client and go do this. Okay. And so I started working with the pro bono clinic in Brooklyn and sort of talked to them a little bit about what I wanted to do. Hmm. And they have a lot of people coming through there who need help. And so we eventually found a client who had bar exam loans. And this was perfect because it was one of these types of non-qualified loans, you know, mm-hmm. a, 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 it's not a qualified loan. And so we filed a lawsuit and, you know, the bank said, what on earth are you talking about? You know, we've got all these cases that say any loan for an educational benefit is non-dischargeable. Mm-hmm. And they said, well, why do you, what case do you have? And I said, well, I don't have any cases, but it's just wrong. And they sort of smirked and, you know, threatened sanctions at one point. And, but we filed the case, we got motion to dismiss and we won. And the judge wrote an incredible opinion called In Ray Campbell, where she essentially adopted this interpretation. And she said, and there, you know, she was sort of a better researcher than I was and found some cases that kind of hinted at this, you know, from years ago, but Mm. hadn't had the legislative history and hadn't sort of done a thorough analysis about why this was the proper interpretation of the law. Mm -hmm. And she wrote this great opinion and Wall Street Journal covered it. We got some really good press. It was on ABC News. And so at that point, I thought, okay, now we fixed the problem. (laughs) And it turned out, no, you know, one day of media attention and one win doesn't sort of make you a hero. So I then started saying, all right, well, it looks like we're going to have to sort of, you know, really do this. You know, and we can do some class actions. We got to do some individual cases. We got to win more opinions. We got to go to the circuits. You know, this is going to be a big operation. And so I put in my two weeks in my firm, took out a small business loan, set up shop, and just started filing cases. Mm-hmm. 
and we've been winning pretty much all of them. And, you know, a lot other lawyers have started to get into the mix, and the opinions have been growing. I've been getting some pretty good attention, and we started filing these class actions, you know, because not only is this a problem going forward, but all the people who've been through bankruptcy over the last 12 years have been affected by this, mm-hmm. and we think they're entitled to restitution. And so that's sort of a, a long answer to your question, and probably a little bit more self-involved than it should have been, but that's sort of how I got to where I am today. No, that's exactly what I was looking for. That's great. Thank you. So I want to take a moment here and uh, at least on a high level, explain the specific kinds of private student loans that are subject to discharge in the bankruptcy process. Sure. Well, the first one is unqualified institutions. And you just hinted at that with the Barbary loan or the uh, yeah. the bar loan or whatever. Yeah. But unqualified institutions, can you give us a 30-second spiel on that? Yeah. So in order to be an accredited institution or qualified institution, you have to be contracted with the Department of Education, and you have to be qualified to receive what's called Title IV funding. Mm-hmm. And what this means is essentially the government you know, lends a lot of taxpayer-subsidized money to schools. Mm-hmm. And you can't just set up a college in your basement and say, oh, I'm, a, I'm, I'm Bob's you know, Barber College. And I want my students to be able to borrow federal loans. Not going to work. So the federal government has a very rigorous and very thorough and very bureaucratic process to get Title IV eligibility. Mm -hmm. And once you get that, then you you get the spigot for federal money. Mm -hmm. But if you don't have that, you're not Title IV and your loan isn't a qualified education loan. Mm -hmm. And actually, let me just step back one second if I could because – there's, a, there's an important sort of uh, parity here between bankruptcy and tax. The original definition of a qualified education loan actually isn't from the bankruptcy code. It's from the tax code. Mm-hmm. And the reason is this. Congress granted tax benefits for people who are paying interest on qualified education loans, such that you can deduct the interest payments made on a qualified education loan from your taxes. Mm-hmm. But that's the reason there's this very detailed formula, because this is the IRS after all, and they're not just going to let you say, well, I spent some money on some books and I you know, took a cooking class, so I want to deduct that from my taxes. No, this is only for those loans that meet this criteria. Mm-hmm. And so one of those criteria is it's got to be a recognized school that participates in the Title IV program. Mm-hmm. Another requirement is that the student be an eligible student. Yes, yeah, I want to go into that, but yes. I want to really, you know, to the bankruptcy lawyers out there that are listening, yeah. I really want to, this is a loophole that you can drive a truck through. Yeah. So I, I would like you to list, just quickly, list a yeah. bunch of, you know, Caribbean medical institutes would be an example of yep. an unqualified institution. Can you just off the top of your head list some more? Yeah. So, I mean, the one qualification I'll make is it's hard to speak in generalities here because there's going to be an exception to everything I say. Mm-hmm. You know, there are some cosmetology schools that for some reason are Title IV eligible. Mm-hmm. But sort of the base, so, so understanding that there will be exceptions to this, the general list is, yeah, Caribbean medical schools, most foreign schools. Mm-hmm. There are some foreign schools that are credited, but most of them are not. Cosmetology schools, truck driving schools, flight schools, you know, what we call trade schools generally. I, think, or we, I don't know if we call them that anymore, but mm-hmm. that's something they used to be called. You know, hairstyling schools, a lot of chiropractic schools. And then there are just a lot of online for-profit colleges that are just not accredited. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Uh, now, not always. You know, there are a lot of for-profit schools like in the University of Phoenix that is totally legitimate. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, in, in the sense that it's Title IV. But a lot of for-profit online schools are not Title IV. You know, then you get into the ridiculous examples. There's, you know, there are dog walking schools where you learn how to sort of be a dog sort of, you know, babysitter. There are schools where you can learn how to put horseshoes on horses. This is a legitimate school. It's not Title IV credited, but you can borrow money from a private bank to attend it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, my general rule is if you haven't heard of it, check it out. You know, and especially another interesting thing to note is the further west you move, the more of these there are. It's very hard to operate an unaccredited school in the east. But once you get to California, California has thousands of unaccredited schools operating mm-hmm. because they, the state regulations are very loose. Mm-hmm. You can literally set up a college in your basement. And if you can get a contract with a private bank to make student loans, you're off and running. All right. So, yeah, Caribbean medical schools, any kind of trade school, online for-profit colleges, these are the sort of areas you want to be looking at. Or if your client says they went to a school like that, that's when you should really perk up. And that's, you know, this is a loophole that's so easy that you kind of picked it, cherry-picked it for your for your first case. Right. That's right. Yeah, this, yeah but that's what we want. There are a number of requirements. Some of them are tougher than others. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, exactly. A bar exam loan. You know, Barbary is not a, a, a Title IV program. Uh-huh. And so we, we were fortunate that that was one of the ones that came to us early because it was the easiest one to win, for sure. Awesome. Okay, so then the second issue is one that you've already brought up, 
but it's the unqualified persons. Yeah. So, so can you go into that, please? Yeah. So the, the eligible student is you've got to be attending essentially, you've got to be a U.S. citizen and you've got to be attending more than part time or I'm sorry, part time or more. So if you are only attending, you know, generally, I think it's six credits is, is half time. So anything six credits or above, you're an eligible student. But if you're taking five credits or less, which I have seen reports say that's 12% of the student population, mm-hmm. you are not an eligible student. You're not eligible for Title IV funding. Any money you got must have come from a private bank, and it's not a qualified loan, even if you were at a real school, because you were only a part-time student. Mm-hmm. So U.S. citizen and, you know, half time or more. Those are, the, those are the two things to look for. Now, I saw the PowerPoint presentation that you and Michael Jafar presented, I think, at, at, at NACBA. Yeah. And it, I, 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 this is a recollection. Yeah. But I, th- I thought it mentioned something about eligible foreign students. Is that? Yeah. I mean, I, I, again, that's, you know, the, 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 I think there are some eligible foreign student sort of exceptions. Mm-hmm. I can't think of what they are off the top of my head. Okay. That's fine. But yeah, that that's you know this is where you sort of need to look at the code or you sort of use the best case tool mm-hmm. because it, it it get and this is sort of I think why so many people have ignored it because like you know when you start to take apart IRS regulations there is an exception to every exception to every rule sure. and it, it it becomes very cumbersome and burdensome to work through and but what I'll I'll remind people of the burden is on the creditor mm-hmm. I don't have to prove my 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 client was an eligible student or an eligible student, the bank has to prove they were an eligible student. And a lot of people miss that. No, 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 this is not my burden. you got to prove this is a qualified loan. And they say, well, how am I going to do that? I say, I have no idea how you're going to do that. And frankly, I don't think you're going to. But, you know, don't try to tell me this is my problem. Mm -hmm. So the third, I think there's the third major category, which is what you call the cost of attendance uh, issue in your your seminal article. Is is that the last major category or – uh, yeah, that, I mean, I think there, there's a couple other sort of minor categories uh, that really haven't been fleshed out too much in the case law. But yeah, I mean, cost of attendance is certainly, and I think cost of attendance is also the biggest. Mm-hmm. This is the biggest area. And what cost of attendance is, is for people attending accredited schools. Mm-hmm. You could be attending Harvard. You could be attending the University of Illinois. But again, getting back to this tax distinction, every penny you spend when you're in college is not a qualified expense. The only penny that we're going to allow you to deduct the interest from are those that are made within the cost of attendance. And what's the cost of attendance? That is the addition of tuition, room, board, books, sometimes a computer, sometimes health insurance. There's a li- it's up to the school, but the school has to publish that, and it has to be reasonable, right? In order to maintain Title IV eligibility, mm-hmm. you've got to be proving that you're not ripping your students off. Mm-hmm. So if you are running you know, at the University of Oklahoma, Room and board better be a lot less than it is at NYU because mm-hmm. you are living in Tulsa, Oklahoma, not you know the West Village. And so, it, 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 so the cost of attendance is school specific, but it is a strict number. And what happens is, you know, you start your your, your year and you've got you know, let's just say for the sake of argument, thirty thousand dollars in qualified education expenses. That's mm-hmm. what the cost of attendance is. Mm-hmm. Federal government's probably going to lend you eight or nine. Uh, Maybe your parents are going to chip in a little bit. Maybe you're going to work over the summer, and you're going to start paying into that. Mm -hmm. Once you hit $30,000, every dollar you get above that is not a qualified education expense. Mm -hmm. You know, if you want to live in a nicer apartment, you want to buy a car, you want to go on spring break, you know, or you just, you know, you love reading and you want to buy, you know, a first edition set of Shakespeare's complete works, that's fine, but that's not a qualified education expense. So, you know, people get often tripped up about, well, what if I, you know, both ways? Well, what if I use the money for legitimate educational expenses? Or what if I use federal money for alcohol and drugs? Mm-hmm. Well, no. The question is not how you use the money. The question is, was it within the cost of attendance? Okay. So let's break this down. Yeah. And so, by the way, I looked this up. I, I looked at some of the data sources. And yeah. in this spreadsheet that you can download from this data thingy that uh, Mike Jafar actually... Yeah, iPad. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the Department of Education is required by the Depart- by that Higher Education Act to keep a database of all this and make it public. Okay, so we'll, we'll link that data source in the transcript, but... Uh, yeah. Man, these tuitions are crazy. Well, they are. I mean, it, it, and that is, you know, <laughs> a problem in itself. Mm-hmm. But I think I said before, you want, we need to make sure the schools aren't ripping you off. Well, I guess that's a little bit subjective. I mean, the, the, the tuition rates... I think the figure I saw was they've been increasing eight times faster than the consumer price index or something mm. like that. Yeah. It is, I think, 
not to sound like a sort of nostalgic conservative, but, you know, I do meet people, you know, who say, you know, when they went to college, you could pay for college by working at a bar over the summer. Mm-hmm. You know, that was sort of, that, that was the general consensus was you can make five or six grand over the summer or whatever it was, and that will pay for your college. And, you know, that is so far beyond where we are now. Yeah. And, I, you know, I don't know how we bring it back to some sanity. You know, a lot of people have different ideas about how we got to where we are. But you're right, it is, it, it is outrageous in a lot of ways. So I just pulled up the numbers for Harvard just for yeah. the heck of it. And sure. the tuition alone is $43,000. Yeah, right. So, <laughs> so the cost of attendance would then have to kind of um, – or the loan would have to be in excess of $43,000. Right. In order to be eligible for discharge through the through the that's right, and and I will make one important distinction here. Uh, the code actually says the loan must be made solely for qualified higher education expenses, and that means if ten dollars, let's say, so let's say you go to Harvard, it's forty four thousand dollars. You borrow forty three thousand dollars from the federal government, right? Mm-hmm. And then you borrow twenty thousand dollars from a bank. Mm-hmm. Okay, so forty three thousand dollars from the federal government, all qualified. A thousand of the dollars from the bank is qualified, but the other nineteen thousand is not. Mm-hmm. The whole thing is dischargeable because unless the entirety of the loan was within the cost of attendance, mm-hmm. it's what's called a mixed-use loan, and it is the, the interest is not tax deductible, and it's dischargeable in bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. What about something where like the interest and penalties bring up? make the balance on the loan seven trillion dollars right. no so yeah no good <laughs> nice try but no it is it's at the the moment of origination okay so yeah i mean it, it will it will it will balloon after that but it, it, we're looking at it how much was originated uh-huh so so the trick there is that you listen to the 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 prospective client explaining the situation then you go to in the database you calculate their tuition plus room and board plus whatever the other things that you mentioned, and then you compare them yeah. to the amount of loans that they originated in that year. And then I believe, I, I think I read this in an article that you wrote, where the first thing that you do is you you eat up some of the the cost of attendance, kind of the, the federal student loans get the first bite at the apple. Well, that, that's my argument. My argument is that the federal government has priority. Uh-huh. There is that, there's no consensus on that yet. Some... You know, I've been through some judges say, no, 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 we're just going to do this on a first-in, first-account accounting system. Mm-hmm. And then I'd like to say, well, what do you count as first-in? Is that, you know, I mean, if I, you know, the federal government sometimes will disperse the money throughout the year, What when, you know, so how are you going to do the timeline on that? And that is, but you're, that's certainly the argument I make. No, federal government has priority, but there is going to be some sort of timeline, you know. Uh, generally, the, my, in my experience, the, the private loans come afterwards. You're generally going to get your federal money in August, and then you're going to get the, fed, the, the private loans in September or November. So often, most often, I don't have a problem with this, you know. But, yeah, there are going to be some times, I think, where, you know, and if it's really close, and I, I don't mean to sort of diverge here, but let me sort of bring up one other point. Mm-hmm. There is a major difference in private student loans between what are called school-certified loans and direct-to-consumer loans. Mm-hmm. And I think I mentioned this earlier, but school-certified loans are the, – the money isn't given to you. The money is given to the school. Mm-hmm. And sometimes a client will come to me, and he'll sort of show me all of his loans. And it's not only loans. Remember, it's also scholarships and grants. Mm-hmm. And so I'll look at his, his statement, and let's say he's got $20,000 in eligibility. And so he'll get $6,000 from the federal government. He'll got a, he got a $1,500 state scholarship, you know, a couple other things. And then his, he's got some private loans, and it adds up to $20,085. Mm-hmm. Now, based on what I just told you previously, well, it doesn't matter. The private loan's $85 over, and it's dischargeable. Mm-hmm. And that may be true, but I have to say that when it's a school-certified loan, I, I, I'm less confident that we're going to be able to get it discharged because it, it has this sort of more fundamental student loan quality to it. Mm-hmm. And most of the people with those kinds of loans, frankly, aren't above the cost of attendance. The people that you're going to run into that have the real problems are the ones who got into these direct-to-consumer loans. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the banks did 50 or $60 billion in these, so there's a lot of it out there. I mean, with interest and fees, I'm sure it's well over $100, $150 billion by now. Mm-hmm. And there's no – it's not even close for most of these people. You know, their, their college was $15,000. They borrowed 12000 from the federal government, and then they got $60,000 in direct-to-consumer loans. Mm. So, you know, very often I find that the people that are really in trouble didn't need my help. It's not, you know, you don't have to do this, this painfully careful analysis. I mean, you know, you should do it in order to be thorough. But, you know, if you're getting into a situation where you're sort of having to count pennies 
and you know which penny came first, which penny came second. Mm. You know, it, 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 that's a tougher argument to make, I think, in court. Mm-hmm. And uh, and there are the direct consumer program was so broad and so massive. That's where you're really going to find these problems. Are these institutions still making these sorts of direct? They're not really making them anymore. You know, the the, the New York Attorney General really cracked down on a number of the banks. Congress got involved. The CFPB started getting involved. And they didn't outlaw them, but they said, guys, these are super dangerous, and they're not really student loans. You know, you got to... And so most of the banks, you know, around 2008, 2009, you read their annual reports, and they say, you know, we have voluntarily ceased our direct-to-consumer lending, and now all of our loans are school certified. Well, it wasn't really all that voluntary. Mm-hmm. But, you know, also it was partly because credit dried up in 08 after the crash. So, you know, between that and the congressional investigations uh, and the default rate on these things, I mean, the default rate was 40 45%. So they, they, they just sort of stopped. And if, if you are a bankruptcy lawyer and you're kind of just scanning for a name of uh, institution names that gave out these kind of direct-to-consumer yeah. loans, what are the names that, that jump out? Yeah, so the biggest ones you're going to look for are Navient or Sally Mae, mm-hmm. sort of the same entity. The, the, a really big one is the National Collegiate Trust. Oftentimes those are serviced by American Education Services, AES. But Navient, Sally Mae, National Collegiate Trust, American Education Services – those are sort of the biggest ones. I would say eight out of ten of the clients who walk into your door with student loan problems, if they've got private student loan problems, they're going to be with one of those two. And then, you know, Wells Fargo, Citibank, and J.P. Morgan were all involved in this, but to a much lesser degree. Mm-hmm. This is all very exciting. One of the very exciting elements of this is that you're able to discharge private student loans. But there's another element that, as someone that helps bankruptcy attorneys, has got me really excited, which is that there's a deep pocket. Yeah. And there can be payoff for attorney's fees, FCRA violations, FDCPA, TCPA, all that yeah. stuff. But I want you to put, you know, to explain this in your own words. What are some of the things that can happen in a, how, how can a lawyer get paid on these cases? Yeah. So, you know, I, I guess let's talk about the two ways to get paid. Mm. The first way, obviously, is that your client has to. Mm-hmm. This can be complicated work. And, you know, uh, bankruptcy lawyers need to earn a living. And so... What I generally do, sometimes I'll tell you this, more and more often, a lot of these kids' loans were co-signed by their parents, mm. and their parents will pay me to do it. Mm. And so that's one way. Is, you know, people of the millennial generation, 25 to 35, you know, sometimes if the parents are involved in any way, sometimes they can pay you hourly to do it. Mm-hmm. I either charge hourly or sometimes I'll do kind of a reverse contingency fee where I'll say, all right, you pay me 10% of whatever the value of the debt is I, I discharge for you. Okay. And, you know, a lot of times, and that's sort of how I do payment plans. So, you know, you can pay me over a year, over two years. Okay. So one is sort of go with, try to work with the parents. Two is try to do some sort of payment plan or reverse contingency fee. My experience, you know, these things, first of all, they don't really go to trial. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you can do one of these in 20, 25 hours, really, at most. So it's really not as much work as you might be afraid of. You know, you file the complaint, do some discovery. And it's, I think the, and the more and more of these cases we win, I think the less work they're going to become because the banks, they are fighting us, you know, very hard on this all student loans are still non-dischargeable idea. Mm-hmm. And they keep losing. And we recently won the Ninth Circuit BAP. So you really can't make that argument in the Ninth Circuit anymore. And so that I think over the next years, we win more of these and we hopefully get some circuit opinions. The banks will stop making that argument and these things will become even more quick. Mm-hmm. But, you know, so can think about it, 20, 25 hours of work, you know, however you're going to value that for your client, you know, I think, you know, try to work out. There's a family member who can help pay if they have a job and you can put in, work, work out a payment plan. Those are sort of my two suggestions for how to get paid if you need to be paid by the debtor. Mm-hmm. The more lucrative way is to make the bank pay. Mm-hmm. And the way you do that is pretty simple, actually. But the problem is it has to be an old bankruptcy case. Mm-hmm. So what you need is you know, go through your old file and you know try to think about, oh, I remember you know, the lawyer that came to my office. He probably had a bar exam loan. Mm-hmm. All of those loans, you know, something people also miss is, you know, when you get your discharge, it's not like it sends certain loans into this kind of debt purgatory. Either it's a final determination. Either the debt was discharged or it wasn't. And there's an important case law that says, and the parties may not even know. You know, the bank may say it wasn't, it wasn't discharged. You may say it was. Um, or you may not know. You may agree with the bank. But it doesn't matter. It either was or it wasn't. And what you can do is you reopen your bankruptcy case. 
and you file an adversary proceeding and you say, look, not only was his debt discharged, but they've been hounding me to pay it, and these are discharge violations. Mm-hmm. And bankruptcy lawyers, I think, are pretty familiar with those. You know, it's a claim under Section 524 of the Bankruptcy Code, which is a permanent injunction. And if the, if the, de- if the creditor is trying to collect on a discharge debt, they're in contempt of court. Mm-hmm. And the court can order not only them to pay your attorney's fees, but punitive damages. And a lot of courts will award up to $500 per collection attempt. You know, I, there was just a case in the Ninth Circuit the other day, you know, where the, de- uh, the bank entered $119,000 in punitive sanctions. And they said, look, every single phone call you made after the discharge is a discharge violation, and it's $1,000 a piece. Mm-hmm. And the Ninth Circuit BAP upheld that. So, you know, uh, and not only that, you know, sometimes we go into state court or into federal court and assert FDCPA claims. Mm-hmm. Trying to collect on a discharge debt is a misrepresentation of the legal status of that debt. Mm-hmm. And so there's, there's a number, you know, there are people, you can probably think of other kinds of tort claims or statutory claims to bring, mm-hmm. you know, when, when the fundamental issue is you are, and because it is, essentially it's fraud, right? Mm-hmm. You are trying to collect on a debt that, you, that and we'll get to this later, you know the, is not owed. Mm-hmm. And you're making a misrepresentation that the person owes money, the person's relying on it, and they're paying you. That's fraud. Well, there's, I mean, you get into the issue of intent, like did Navient or, right. let's not say Navient, but did Institution X knowingly try to collect on a student loan knowing that it was discharged in the bankruptcy? Well, I, it, it, and I'll tell you why I think you're going to have some success with that is because they tell their investors that these things are dischargeable. So they are telling the consumers they're non-dischargeable, but they know they're not going to get away with that to sophisticated parties on Wall Street. So you read the prospectuses for these student loan trusts, and they say, hey, guys, watch out. A lot of these loans are not qualified education loans, and they may be dischargeable in bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. So you're right. I have not successfully sued someone for fraud, but I have. uh, One day, I I, I hope to. Okay. So, you know, in terms of collecting from the... Collecting from the debtor, where you know, you've outlined the statutory penalties for violations of you know Section 524 and other other penalties as well, or other deep pockets. So I mean, the two people there's sort of three people you can go after in one of these situations. You can go after the the bank that owns the loan. Mm-hmm. You can go after the third party servicer who is trying to collect on the loan. Mm-hmm. Um, and I generally sue both of them. Mm-hmm. And the third person is the credit reporting bureau. Mm-hmm. You can you can complain to the credit bureau that this loan was discharged in bankruptcy and they have to remove it. And if they don't remove it, you can sue the credit bureau. And so that's sort of the three people, you know, you may be able to think of other people that you can sue who have some liability for violating your statutory rights. Yeah. When I was uh, speaking with uh, Michael Jafar in the podcast earlier, he also mentioned that if you have a student loan, a private student loan that was discharged in bankruptcy maybe five, ten years ago, or that should have been discharged, the student loan servicer claimed that it wasn't discharged, made you pay right. for ten years, and so you have that kind of cumulative pot of gold. Oh, yeah. So you can get that back. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you know, that is – and that happens, you know uh, – you know, I'd say about half the time. That's right. Yeah, it's not only punitive damages, but right, of course, restitution. Any penny they've paid with interest mm-hmm. gets refunded. Oh, wow. With interest? Yeah. I didn't know that. How do they calculate yeah. the interest rate? I think, you know, generally states have statutory rates. I think it's like 7 or 8%. Oh, okay. You know, it, it, <laughs> I, it, it's not going to add up to a ton. I mean, that's, you know, I mean, it may add up to something, but, you know, if you only pay back six, 700 bucks, you know, which is generally what I see. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there, I'm sure there are people out there who've repaid thousands and thousands, and in that situation, yeah, the interest would be very important. So uh, I'd also like to mention that if you are able to discharge the student loan in the bankruptcy process, it's my belief, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's my belief that that's not a taxable event because it's being discharged in the bankruptcy process. That's exactly, that's very important. And yeah, I think the, the, that's exactly right. And when you're doing one of these, you need to make sure, you know, a lot of times these will come to settlement and part of the settlement uh, you needs to be no 1099 will be issued on this because you do not get a 1099 for debts that are discharged in bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's very important. So you're saying that, you know, I'm talking about going to trial and, and getting something verified as dischargeable in student loans. But obviously, there is a settlement thing. Does a loan servicer kind of have the ability to say we won't issue a 1099? The loan servicers, not. You're going to need the bank for that. Okay. So, you know, as I said, I generally sue both. Uh-huh. And because, yeah, I think that's probably right. I think that the, the third-party servicer, to the extent you're only suing them. I mean, the problem is you can't actually – I don't know that you could get away with just suing the third-party servicer because they don't own the debt. So, I mean, they couldn't settle it, for instance, because they don't own it. So you're, you're going to have to bring in the guy who owns the loan. Mm-hmm. And what about the entity of the student loan trust, which I believe is the, the agent yeah. that securitizes the student loan? Yeah, that's exactly right. So that'll happen. 
it gets a little tricky there. You know, National Collegiate Trust, you know, what's going to happen is your client's going to say, I make all these payments to American Education Services every month. And you say, okay, well, that's probably National Collegiate Trust. And so you're going to sue National Collegiate Trust. And they're going to come back and say, well, National Collegiate Trust isn't legally a thing. You need to sue the specific trust that owns the loan. Mm -hmm. So then you'll have to generally amend your pleadings and sort of put in the proper name. Because in my experience, you can never find out who the trust is because you're not paying that trust. You pay AES and then they give it to the trust who owns the loan. So for when it so when it comes to National Collegiate Trust, that's a sort of you know an additional hassle. Navient or the other banks, although a lot of the loans are securitized, there's some kind of beneficiary ownership that you can just sue Wells Fargo or sue Citibank or sue Navient, Sally Mae, mm-hmm. and and that's going to be the proper party. Mm-hmm. So Austin, how can people start filing these cases? Well, okay, so let's say that I'm a lawyer, which I'm not. I'll, I'll uh, plug myself and say that I'm an AdWords. Uh, a marketing consultant for uh, bankruptcy lawyers, okay. specializing in Google AdWords. But if I were a lawyer and I came to you and I said, please, Sensei, I want you to teach me how to do these cases, what, what would you advise? So the, I guess, you know, the sort of two things are one, you know, how do you do these cases? And two, you know, how do I find these people? And I'll put in a plug for the best case software right now. Mm. You know, I spent the last year working with them to create this platform uh, that will essentially automate everything we've just talked about. You just put in your students, you know, your customers, your clients, rather, uh, student loan information. It will aggregate all of it. It will run it across the Department of Education, and it will spit out a nice, clean form that answers all your questions. Wow. So that's – and it will also provide you pleadings, you know, a complaint, a motion uh, for summary judgment, and all the things you need, discovery requests to get this done. So I would, you know, if you think you're a best-case customer – you know, that's a very useful product. To the extent you're not... Wait, let's stop Let's stop there because um, yeah. I believe the product is called the Student Loan Analyzer. Is that right? That's correct, yes. And so it's my understanding that you were involved in creating this product. Is that true? Yeah, yeah that's right. You know, best case really sort of, you know, my hat's off to them because they're very, not only sort of competitive, you know, organization, but they really, and I mean this, you know, they have, they want to help their clients who are bankruptcy lawyers help their clients. And so when I first started doing this, you know, I got introduced uh, to Dave Danielson, who's the CEO. And this was, you know, when it was really sort of still kind of a crackpot idea, but he really saw some value to it. And he said, look, you know, you know, we, we hear this problem, you know, this is an emerging problem. It's going to be getting bigger and bigger. And, you know, how do we help these people? Mm-hmm. How do we help the lawyers help their clients? And so we started sort of workshopping ideas and said, well, you know, to the extent you could create a computer program that will tell you whether your loan is a qualified education loan or not. I mean, that's really the biggest hurdle because, you know, when I, certainly when I first started doing this, you know, it's really hard to figure out sometimes. It is kind of a formula, but, you know, until you sort of develop that sixth sense about it and you can sort of spot these things, you know, it's very complicated. And so we were hoping that that was going to sort of, you know, uh, be a tool that people could use that would sort of assist them with this, get them comfortable with it. You know, we did some blogs and some videos that sort of try to just make this as simple as possible. You know, there are some complicated issues, but, you know, it is, it, it, it's very doable and, to the extent that there's also a feature on the product that will search through your old customers that you can help, you know, people who came to you years ago with big student loan problems, you know, before we had any of this good case law. And, you know, you can reach back out to them and say, hey, you know, I remember we did your bankruptcy you know, four years ago, and I remember you, you know, went to an unaccredited medical school. Well, it turns out that loan may have been discharged. You know, why don't we sort of get you down here and figure out if we can get some of that, we can get that money back and we can get this off your credit report and we can get you, you know, that fresh start, which is the whole reason you came to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's drill down into this a little bit. With Student Loan Analyzer, I would imagine that the first time that you go through, you're building a best case file for a client, you're not going to ask them questions like, did you, how many credits did you do every year in college? So I, I imagine that there's some kind of holes that you need to to fill in can you talk about that a little bit yeah i mean you know so it is you know it, it is not i mean it is a it's got a lot of functionality but you know it's not you know for instance there's something we didn't talk about you know this, this idea that unless you were a qualified taxpayer mm-hmm. you know there may be some dischargeability issues so there are you know because this is such a complicated statute the tool itself isn't going to answer every question you have what it's going to do is you're going to your client's sitting there where'd you go to school type in the school's name and it's going to pop up, yep, that's accredited, or no, it's not. Okay. So if it's not accredited, well, you're done. Now you know the student loan's dischargeable. Mm-hmm. All right, well, let's say it is accredited. All right, well, you know, 
can we look at your credit report? You know, we're going to have to find out how much money did you borrow mm-hmm. to the extent that they remember. They're like, oh, no, I was only attending school at night on the weekends. Mm-hmm. You say, oh, okay, well, then it's not a credit. I'm sorry, then you're not an eligible student. So there is, you know, there's, there's a, a certain amount of information that you're going to need to get out of your client to make the tool work. Mm-hmm. And I usually, and I think it, it starts at the most basic and the easiest. Was this school accredited? Mm-hmm. You know? How much did you borrow? Were you a full-time student? Mm-hmm. Um, and as you sort of work through these, sometimes your client's not going to know, and you're going to need to get them to get more information. And so this is where it does become a little bit of a process, you know. But when you're sitting, if the client is sitting there with two hundred thousand dollars in debt, you know, it's worth them tracking down some documents to get to the bottom of this. Yeah. But yeah, the tool is not. It's not. It doesn't do all the work for you. You've got to do some real input for it. No, I get it. I mean, yeah. We don't. This isn't Hogwarts. Right. Exactly. <laughs> But if you're a lawyer like a lot of my clients, they file 500 cases a year. And yeah. so over the last 10 years, they have 5,000 cases. Yeah. Are you saying that if you do use best case, you can kind of go in there and – so how would you use best case to analyze, you know, a, a corpus of 5,000 cases? Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, so looking – right, so yeah, I should sort of clarify that. Looking back, all you're going to be able to do with looking back is find out to the extent it was a student debt and who the bank was oh. or who the owner – have any of this information about that in your file. So what, you know, what I, when I talk to people about it, I say, well, you know, pull up everyone with a Sally Mae loan or pull up everyone with a national collegiate loan. Uh-huh. And, you know, sometimes people pull up two, 300 people and, and you'll say, all right, well, you know, you can uh, send them a letter. You know, these are your clients. And, you know, that's sort of where it's, you know, the bankruptcy lawyer is going to have to make his own marketing determinations about what do I want to do? How do I want to contact these people? How can I help them? Mm-hmm. And that's when they're going to have to, you know, at some point come back in and then you can use the analyzer, but they're going to need to then put in that, do that input. So the, the sort of looking back feature isn't going to have the data you need at that moment. Yeah. But the uh, the cool thing is that you can use Student Loan Analyzer to find the needles that's, that are worth contacting you in, in your haystack. And that's then right. once you find the needles, not everyone's going to be a true, let's call that's them right. a, not everyone's going to be a gold needle, but. Right. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, you, you can at least find the needles or I guess, you know, another way to say it is you can sort of make your pile of hay a lot smaller, mm-hmm. you know, and you can say, all right, well, here's my defined universe of people with student loans. Mm-hmm. You know, how exactly can I find out, you know, which ones are eligible for some relief? And that is, you know, different lawyers have different ideas about how to do that and whatever is most efficient and whatever sort of makes the most, more, more sense for you once you've got that list of people. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And then when it comes to answering these questions, are you suggesting that the way Student Loan Analyzer works is that it's kind of like uh, I use in, uh, Intuit Tax, TurboTax, and so I just fill out like a little wizard, and then it tells me how much tax I owe. It's a similar kind of wizard. Yeah, it's very, it's very similar, you know, and it actually it's got some other great features because you know this is not as we sort of talked about, you know, eight, you know, of the one point three trillion dollars, you know, one trillion of it is federal debt, mm-hmm. so a lot of these people are going to have federal loans, but it will also do sort of an undue hardship analysis for you. You know, if you put in the data, it'll say, all right, you know, you are in the Central District of California. There have been 37 undue hardship proceedings in the Central District of California over the last 10 years, and 26 of them have been successful. And, and in fact, it'll go down to the judge. You'll say, this judge has heard three undue hardship ch- challenges, and he's granted all three of them, or he's denied all three of them. Mm-hmm. So it'll sort of give you an idea about, all right, here's my client's income level, here's their expenses. You know, the other thing we did want to sort of point out to people was, to the extent that the loans are accepted from discharge, you know, don't stop there. The federal government can be a, a beast in litigation, but if you've got qualified private lenders, you know, file an undue hardship challenge. You know, if your client's making minimum wage mm-hmm. when they've got a serious burden, you know, it's, you may not be able to win undue hardship challenge, but you can certainly work something out in settlement that's going to be a lot better for your client. Yeah. And so it'll sort of give you some guidance on how to do that because, as, we, as I think I probably said, you know, 99% of cases settle. So do not imagine that when you file this case, you've got to be ready to go to trial. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've got to file it in good faith, and you've got to believe your client has a right to relief. You know, but if you're a bankrupt student, <laughs> I think you have a legitimate reason to file an undue hardship challenge. You, you know, if you are not making enough money to service your debt, mm-hmm. and so you know, file them, uh, get those on file, and I think you will find you're gonna you're gonna have some very happy clients. And as we talked about, you know, you can you, you can build out a sort of sub practice here and start generating more revenue for your for your practice. Okay. Well the last thing I wanna just 
ask quickly about is income-based uh, repayment plans for federal student loans. Does student loan yeah. analyzer do anything on that front? I know we're asking it to do a lot, but... Yeah, now, so what it will do is to the extent that you've got a federal student loan problem, it will refer you to a third party that is contracted with Best Case to help people work through their income-based repayment. Because although, you know, some of the paperwork can be a little bit troublesome, mm-hmm. and it, it, you know, working with the federal government is always a bit of a nightmare. So they, they have a reason, you know, it won't do it itself, but it does have a resource that will can assist your client in getting into one of those programs, because that's the first thing I tell people, you know, if they've got federal loans, get into an income-based repayment. That's what I'm in. You know, I've got $200,000 in student debt myself, and, you know, I pay a significant amount each month, but it's doable. It's 15% of my income, mm-hmm. and it's, uh, it's fine. It is far better than the alternative, I think, mm-hmm. which is paying those sort of market rate based on principal and interest. Yeah. Um, Austin, have you thought about leading a workshop on some of these topics? I'm putting you on the spot if you... Don't want to answer the question. That's okay, but yeah, no, I would love. Yeah, we, you know, and I've talked to Dave Danielson at Best Case about that. We're, we're very interested in doing that and how we can sort of get. You know, we we presented at NACBA, and I think it's you know some of the stuff we've talked about today. I understand. At first, it seems sort of complicated. You know, once you start like anything, once you start working it, it sort of becomes second nature. But yeah, no, I re- that's something we do need to do because education is a big part of this sort of breaking through the gridlock, mm-hmm. and so that's something we're certainly exploring and wanting to do. Yeah. Let me ask a, a nitty-gritty question. You said earlier that it's the obligation of the bank to prove that they are not subject to discharge. Yes, that's right. Does that mean that in terms of calculating the cost of attendance, though, they're not going to know all that information? Do they have to? Do they have to use the cost of attendance? Do they need to? generate that or do you need to put that the cost of attendance information in your brain? Well, so, you know, that gets into discovery issues. So, you know, in discovery, you have an obligation to provide any document uh, that they've requested that's under your control or, like, readily accessible. Mm. Uh, and, you know, this is such a new area of law. I don't know some of the answers to those questions. You know, I, you know to the extent that they're going to try to find, you know, in my experience, they go directly to the source. They go to the school and they, mm-hmm. and they subpoena the school. And they oftentimes have to get the school to testify and, you know, I think this is partly where, and I don't mean to, this to sound like a, a gimmick because this, you know, I don't, or that anyone should be acting in bad faith, but this is a real advantage you have in litigation. You know, this is not easy to prove. You know, they're going to have to call witnesses. They're going to have to subpoena records from the Department of Education, probably from the IRS. And so when, you're, when your opponent is sitting in their law office trying to figure out how to prove this is a qualified education loan, that is, that is I think, real leverage that you have to the extent your client is interested in some kind of equitable settlement. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's re- and lawyers, that, that's, that's such an important point. It's, you know, keep the legal burden where it is. Your burden is to prove undue hardship. Mm-hmm. Their burden is to prove it's accepted from discharge. Mm-hmm. And that is not easy to do. And you don't need to, you know, you have to abide by your obligations as a party to a lawsuit to produce relevant documents that are in your possession. You do not have to go out to the Department of Education and get this information. That's for them to do. Mm, wow. Yeah. Um, on the flip side, on the Department of Education website that has all this data, which I'll, I'll link to in the transcript, but, man, it's, it's, it's hard to follow. Does that information get sucked into Student Loan Analyzer? or It does, yeah. So th- that, that's where the Student Loan Analyzer has pulled all of that data, and it aggregates it you know, for your client specifically based on the year and the school and where they were. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, which is nice because, I mean, the website is it is not all that user-friendly, oh, unfortunately. Oh, it's, it's terrible. <laughs> so, you know, it took me about six months to sort of figure out what I was doing on it and how I could find the information, yeah. which was part of the genesis for the student loan analyzer was, you know, this is, you know, I mean, I, that used to take me eh, two or three hours for a client. And now with the analyzer, you know, there's a nice little part, right? that's two or three hours saved, you know, just done. Mm-hmm. You just type in the info and you got it. And it's like any of the other bankruptcy softwares out there in the, it will prepare all the filings. You just kind of that's hit right. print and then review. You, you, you got it. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Okay. Well, is there, is there anything that I had, you know, that I haven't kind of asked you that should have asked you in terms of understanding the private student loan issues out there? I don't think so. I think you were pretty comprehensive and I think we covered everything. Yeah. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but well, you were telling me earlier that you're getting all these phone calls every day from people. Yeah. I mean, you're getting essentially free leads, which is something that most people have to yeah. pay a lot, a lot of money for. Yeah, I know. For. 
Yeah, it's been, and you know, I am a one man band, and so you know, I can't even keep track of, uh, keep up with all of it. Mm-hmm. And we are, you know, to the extent that other lawyers get involved in this, you know, I mean, there, there's there's a wonderful lawyer in Florida. There's some lawyers in California. There's a great lawyer in Missouri, mm-hmm. who I've sort of developed relationships with. And you know, when I get a call from someone in California, I refer them. And you know, we would love to grow that more, that kind of you know network of student loan attorneys, because there are so few of us. And, you know, someone, you know, someone will be quoted in an article and they'll get a bunch of calls, you know, from people all over the country. You know, and I'm not a Missouri lawyer, so I can't help them. Yeah. But, I, you know, so to the extent we can build a 50-state network for people who do this and are interested in doing this, mm. I mean, there are, you know, there's so much work to do. You know, it is, it is you know, my, by my estimates, there are 250,000 people right now who have been through bankruptcy, who have non-qualified private loans, who are being harassed into repaying them. Mm-hmm. And that's a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. You know, when you think that, if, to do a little, some numbers with you, if you file an FDCPA suit and you're sort of getting some refunds or whatever, you know, value one of those cases at $10,000. That's $2.5 billion in attorney's fees, not to mention restitution. That is money that currently is possessed by the bank that should be in the pockets of the debtors and the attorneys for doing the work. Yeah. And so that is, some people, like I said, that is just gold in the streets waiting to be picked up. And as I think we talked about before, there's this wonderful confluence of, you know, self-interest and this this altruism. (laughs) You know, this is a problem that not only helps people, I mean, these people's lives have really been hurt by this. Mm -hmm. And you can both help them and make some money doing it, which, you know, is sort of the American dream, I guess, in a lot of ways. Yeah. And so I really, people say, oh, you know, don't you want to keep this to yourself? No, I don't, because I, you know, there's so much of this. I could never conceivably do all this myself, mm-hmm. Nor, you know, and there are people all over the country, and we've got a, a big active bankruptcy bar that has all the tools right now to sort of, to resolve this problem, not only for the 250,000 people who are currently operating under this, this disability, but all, think about all the people, you know, over the next 20 years that are coming to your offices. You know, I think it's a real opportunity to sort of to get involved in this space of litigation and do some really good work and make some money doing it. Yeah. Do you think that beyond it being an opportunity, that it's also an obligation, that it's almost legal malpractice or legal malfeasance to not? Yeah, I mean, you know, and I, I'll say, you know, just candidly, you know, sometimes I talk to lawyers who are very worried about this. You know, was I committing malpractice for the last 10 years? And you absolutely were not. There were no cases that said this. You know, the case law was pretty clear. No student loan could be discharged. Mm-hmm. So that was a completely reasonable thing to think and to tell people. I think that now, as, you know, this is getting more attention and more cases are going this way, yeah, I would say you probably have an ethical obligation to look at this. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, at least be very clear with your clients that this is just not something you do. But I, I'm i sort of on the side of, that may be right. You may be sort of just doing a big volume bankruptcy practice this isn't something you're interested in. And that's fine. But I think that one thing I would say is, you know, telling your clients there's nothing they can do about this, that's the, that's the, that's the statement that needs to stop. Yeah. You know, the statement can be, I can't help you, but, you, you know, go find someone who can. But so many people come to me and they say, well, my lawyer told me I couldn't get rid of this. And that was probably, the, the, it wasn't a true statement when the bankruptcy said it, but it was a reasonable statement. Yeah. I don't know how much of a reasonable statement that is anymore. Yeah. And so I'm hoping over the next year, you know, these things don't happen overnight, but over the next couple of years, that narrative starts to change. And that's when the power really is going to shift from the creditor's bar to the bankruptcy bar. Yeah. When the sort of consumers and the bankruptcy lawyers stop just sort of rolling over for the creditors and start saying, you know, you know screw you guys. You've proved to me this is a non-dischargeable debt. Yeah. Do you think that bankruptcy lawyers are, do you think it's fair for them to charge additional amounts of money for the service? Because they do have to do a lot more work. Absolutely. No, yeah, I, I always tell them that. You know, look, this is not, this is a professional service you're offering. No one expects you to do this for free. Mm. And clients don't expect me to do it for free, you mm. know. I mean, I, I work out, you know, with different clients, different payment arrangements. But no, I mean, we've got to eat. We've got, we've got lives to lead. This is a very valuable professional service. And to the extent that there isn't a sort of deep pocket to sue, no, no, yeah, this is extra work, this is extra labor. You know, bankruptcy lawyers are working under a lot, very tight margins sometimes, and it is absolutely right that they get paid for this work. So do you think a fair thing would be whatever they earn for, say, a Chapter 7, but in addition to that, a 10% reverse contingency fee? Yeah, I think, yeah, that, that might be great if you want to do it hourly. Oh, I mean, a lot of this can be done. Once you start doing it, you know, you'll have all the documents and you get used to it. It's not very hard. Mm. Yeah, but I think, you know, a 10% reverse contingency fee, because a lot of times you're going to settle. So you're not going to get the whole thing erased. Mm-hmm. 
I think that's a good way to do it. Or, you know, when I do hourly, I, I, I frankly sort of try to work with a client. I try to work out a payment, an hourly rate that they can afford. I don't like to sort of sell myself too short just because oh, then you sort of get into a problem. Of what is my hourly rate? Yeah. <laughs> that's the sort of marketing and financial thing that I think each lawyer needs to decide for themselves. Yeah. But no, I, I don't think this, this, you know, given the what the, the Chapter 7 fee is for, this is a lot more work and you need to get paid for it. Yeah. Well, how do you handle the fact that you're essentially incurring, having the, the client incur a loan I mean, you're providing this work on spec, but then they go through the seven discharge process. Why yeah. wouldn't your legal fees be discharged along with all the other debts? Well, so that's a question that I don't, you know, I am not a bankruptcy lawyer who handles people's actually chapter seven. So that's not a problem I've had to deal with yet. People don't usually find me until after their discharge. So that is a question I'm not qualified to answer. Mm. Uh, you know, I don't know exactly how that works, but I assume they're, it's some contractual way to do that, but uh, you, you got you got me there. Yeah, I mean, my answer, and again, I'm not a lawyer, but based off of my conversations with other lawyers, that you can split up your fees between pre dis, uh, uh, pre-filing and post-filing. And yeah, that could be right. So yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah, I assume this is not the first time this problem has arisen. Yeah, there must be a sort of ethical workaround. So not that you're working around the ethics, but that it's ethically a workaround. Yeah. And then, yeah. so the way that, that you handle that is that when you, after the filing, I don't know if it's at the 341 meeting or wherever it is or when it is, but after the filing, then you have them sign a new contract where they... Yeah, yeah I think that's right. I think that's right. I think that another way I like to think about it is even beyond the qualified student loan problem, you know, when we're talking about undue hardships, you know, we're talking about, you know, several billion dollars in private student debt that's going to be going through the bankruptcy courts over the next few years. You know, I think it's absolutely reasonable to think that based on not only unqualified loans, but even qualified loans with an undue hardship challenge, you can cut that in half. Mm. Uh, so we're talking about, uh, you know, lawyers are going to essentially erase several billion dollars in debt. And they, they, they have to get paid for that, right? That's not free. Mm-hmm. You know, but when you think about it with sort of the macro numbers like that, I suppose people get a little bit more excited and think, oh, my God, you're right. So we're going to take five billion dollars and we're going to turn it into two and a half. Mm-hmm. Well, there's some value in cutting $5 billion in half. I, one of the tricks that I think is, you know, I have not entirely figured out, and I hope, you know, other sort of smarter, better sort of marketing guys are going to do is, how do you, how do you monetize that, mm-hmm. right? What's the best way to monetize that? That is a really important service you're providing to your clients. It's not cheap. It's not free. It needs to be fair. But when you just sort of step back for a second and think about what the, the power, what, what, what power you have in front of you mm-hmm. to sort of, you know, erase this debt, and then it's just a matter of how do you monetize it. Awesome. Well, that's a great note to end on. Austin, thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been great. And I'll just end it with another uh, call to action. If you're a bankruptcy lawyer and you have listened to this podcast, hopefully you're as excited as I am. This is a huge opportunity for you. Just really get get involved. Read some briefs. Uh, Austin, would you be willing to send me some briefs that I can upload so that people Absolutely. can? Absolutely. So read those briefs, learn about the case law, and see the, the, the precedents that Austin and other bankruptcy attorneys are sending out there because this is a huge opportunity for us all to, how did you say it, Austin, be self-interested and altruistic at the same time. That's right. That's what we're trying to do. Okay. Awesome. <laughs> all right. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks so much.